So with the students that I work with now, I tell these stories so that they can have this orientation towards the growth, the aspirational self, the person that they would like to become, the heroic self. And they can recognize that part of that is intentionally going out and confronting things and intentionally finding positive struggle because it's through that struggle that we grow. It's through that struggle that we find the flow state. It's through that struggle that we become the person that we would like to become. But also I want to give them that other idea that not only do they have to overcome themselves, um, they have to also be able to look at the world around them and say, what is holding me back? What is holding society back? And how do I become the person who can also confront that? And these two aspects of the heroic individual, I think are incredibly important. And I think the stories give us a way to tap into them that's way more powerful than just describing them explicitly. Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, Please stick around, and if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener-supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. So today we're going to be sharing our interpretation of a couple of archetypal stories that we shared um, in our last podcast. That's called The Two Aspects of the Heroic Journey. You can check it out here. So what we did at Return of the Source this year was we shared these two stories and then we gave the audience or the, the students a chance to think about them and share their interpretations with them before we shared ours. And that's important to us because one of the key ideas about stories and why they're so powerful and important is that there's no absolutely canonical, explicit way of explaining them. They have many different ways of being seen. And because of that depth, they have a power to inform us over and over again. So one of the big stories in my own background is that I was deeply influenced by heroic literature as a child. And that you know really helped me overcome a lot of... Uh, of disabilities, learning disabilities. And so I've read The Lord of the Rings now 13 times. And as I come back to it, you know, at 37 years old, I have a very different experience of the story and what it means to me is very different. So it's really important that as I go through our interpretation of it, you understand that this is just a set of ideas that you can play with um, and, you know, you might get something out of it. So I think there's this is a powerful interpretation. I think that this is captures some very important pieces around it but it is also not the complete truth and it's not necessarily the truth that will be most meaningful to you. So in any event, um, why are we talking about this, right? You could say, why do I as a movement teacher share, share old heroic stories, um, old uh, fairy tales, folk tales in our workshops? And um, that's an interesting question. So the way that I see it is that essentially 
movement practice is a type of hero's journey. It is a intentional effort to step out into the world and confront something that helps you grow. Um, and I think that that really is fundamentally something that calls us into the hero's journey. And this is something that has uh, been influenced deeply by Jordan Peterson. Some of you guys in the audience may, uh, may have negative associations with Jordan Peterson due to his politics. I'm not gonna go into that. I think his work on mythology, his work on the way we understand meaning is incredibly powerful. I invite people to take a look at that and try to set it aside from his politics. But we're gonna be explaining our perspective um, and how it was influenced by Jordan Peterson um, as we go into this. So um, essentially, the, the basic story here is that uh, when we take up a physical practice, there's something that we're looking for. There's something about the world that we're currently living in that's not satisfying. The, the person that we are embodying, the person that we are um, playing out in our lives is not is not what we want to be. And we see within our practice the chance to overcome ourselves and to become something more. And in a very broad scale way, this is essentially what is at the heart of heroic mythology. It is the story of how we confront the things that limit us and prevent us from becoming the person that we would like to become. And we think that these stories are really powerful in giving us a narrative and an architecture to aim towards that gives our lives more meaning and gives our practice more meaning. So I want to tell you guys a little bit about how I came to this perspective and, um, and how it became very meaningful to me. So I, as I said, you know, in my early, in my, my childhood, I had learning disabilities and I had to be taken out of school. And a mentor came into my life and he did a couple things with me. Let's say there's three big things he did with me that gave me the power to overcome my learning disabilities. He cut down my schoolwork to two hours a day, which was great for a kid with ADHD. And he let me spend a lot of time just running around in the woods. And so obviously nature has been a huge key to my work. And that time spent in nature was very healing to me. Two, he roughhoused with me a lot. He let me wrestle with him basically as much as I wanted every day. And that was very, very powerful and healing for me. And we've talked about that in articles and you can check that out on our website. Um, but the last thing he did was he read the Lord of the Rings to me. Um, and I was so engaged by that story that it gave me the motivation to overcome my re reading disability so that I could read it to myself. So I got to the point where I was able to read the chapters myself. And then I went to the point where I was reading um, actually the Iliad and the Odyssey and the last of the 12 Caesars. Um, I think the last of the 12 Caesars was probably in fifth grade. So at the end of third grade, I tested as illiterate. I tested as essentially having made no progress through my four years of school. Um, but by the end of fourth grade, I was reading college level textbooks or college level texts as in the Iliad and the Odyssey. So these stories had this immense impact on me. And my first ambition was to kind of be a fantasy novelist. When I realized that there weren't any dragons out there to slay in life, I wanted to be a fantasy novelist. Um, and from, from epic literature, I went into anthropology and history and, you know, really studied a lot. By the time I went to um, community college when I was 16, I'd read something like 30 different ethnographic um, monographs and all of the, the anthropological literature that was available in my local library. 
lots of stuff about the Celts and lots of uh, Norse Greek mythology and Roman history and Greek history. Uh, you know, I'd read a ton of that by the time I was 16 because it was very interesting to me. But then there was this other aspect of my life, which was um, at 15, I became really interested in athletics and I started taking, training gymnastics. I started training um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai. And I'd been training martial arts off and on since I was six years old, but I got really into it again when I was uh, 15. And I started playing basketball and I got into strength and conditioning and wanted to increase my vertical and kind of was taking that path. Uh, eventually, I started teaching gymnastics. And when it was when I was a gymnastics teacher, I was exposed to parkour. And for me, parkour, you know, I would say it called out that idea of the heroic journey. It was like I had had this disillusionment that there were no dragons out there in the world to slay. But when I saw David Bell jumping from one building to another, it was as if I received this message that there were still dragons. They were just the dragons within our own selves and that we could slay them. We could, we could confront them by going on this movement journey and learning to jump at heights and learning to overcome these things. And that's felt really true. And I was incredibly engaged with my parkour practice for many years, but it was like the philosophy and the story of what parkour was about was incomplete. And there was something that I was searching for that wasn't there. And I, uh, I, I started kind of adopting the mindset of elite athletics, of professional athletes as a kind of way to structure my training and to give me a, a goal to aim at. So I helped create some of the first parkour competitions in North America and I trained to be able to participate in these competitions. And I, I had a few things happen. I had a bunch of injuries, you know, but I, I really lost motivation to try to compete. And I, I set all these goals, specific, measurable, actionable, realistic and time sensitive goals, smart goals as they were called. And I found that they didn't motivate me to practice. There was something that was missing. Um, and at the same time, I had fallen kind of out of love with training primarily in the city and really fallen in love with training in nature. The problem was that there were no natural parkour competitions. Um, so I, I wanted to be training in nature, but I also wanted to be succeeding. You know, I had this narrative that I needed to succeed as a competitive parkour athlete. But eventually I let go of it and I just focused on nature and I was incredibly happy and I made immense amounts of progress through training primarily in nature and it was great for a while. Um, but at some point I started to recognize that I still needed something to be aimed at and I still hadn't articulated what it was. And I was writing about this and I was thinking about this and I, I, uh, I remember I wrote something called the self-worth esteeming right before I encountered Jordan Peterson. And it, it really has a lot of the same ideas. You can check out that video as well. And we'll link it. Um, but I was seeking this and I, and I started noticing that when I was teaching that the stories that I told that were about my own life had this profound impact on my students much more so than when I quoted studies at them or you know, broke down the anatomy and the, and the physiology of why people responded to exercise in, in a given way. The thing that always seemed to move my students the most was a story. So I started getting really interested in this idea of narratives and how narratives really move us and how they, they, they provide the structure that allows us to align ourselves with who we would like to become. And so I was looking for information on this and, um, you know, I was watching the Joe Rogan podcast here and there, you know, just I'd watch a, a few snippets of it. And so YouTube served to me um, Jordan Peterson's interview with Joe Rogan. And, um, you know, I'm 
lean to the right politically. So some of the stuff that he was saying was very resonant for me when he initially was talking to Joe about politics. And I was interested in that. But there was this point in the conversation where it shifted from politics to being about um, his work in a broader sense, his interpretation of Jung and Nietzsche and Piaget and how all of that had come together, this idea of how we create meaning and how it responds to uh, to narrative. And, um, and I was fascinated. It just absolutely blew my mind. And so I dug deep into it and I went and watched his 2017 lecture series, Maps of Meaning, and eventually I brought his book, Maps of Meaning. And, you know, I, I was really questioning myself all the time, why am I spending so much time on reading this and learning this and listening to this guy when I could be spending this time on studying strength and conditioning, studying stuff that seems more directly relevant to my role as a movement teacher. But for whatever reason, it was just the most meaningful. It was the most meaningful thing for me. And so as I've been a teacher, because I teach out, out outdoors for my traveling seminars, um, I've had an off season basically from October, late October to March. And so that year, you know, I was absorbing all this content all the way up until March. And, and then I went to teach my first seminar and I had this question, I had why, why all this Peterson stuff? Why maps of meaning? Why, why study young? Why Nietzsche? What does this have to do with being a better mover? And we, uh, I went to teach the seminar and all of a sudden I would be telling a story or, or, or talking about a drill or talking about the contextualization of the evolved move play method with the students and something that I learned from Peterson would, would, would seem totally relevant to what I was doing and I would start adding it in. And so I got this, this, this idea that essentially what he had been talking about was like another level, uh, it was like, completely congruent with what Evolved Move Play was about. And so then I've, I've been incorporating it. So I started telling the story, um, the story of the Dragon Slayer. So the way that Peterson describes the world in his book, Maps of Meaning, is that essentially we have two ways, or we have two modes of looking at the world, of perceiving the world. And one is um, the world as a place of objects, right? And this is the objective world. This is what allows us to engage in science. This is how we apply empiricism, and it's incredibly important, and it's given us all this technological power. Um, and the other is uh, the world of meaning as it reveals itself to us. And this is what we portray to ourselves with literature and mythology and religion and ritual. Um, and and we, we've, uh, we've lost some access to this because uh, the power of the objective view of the world has sort of blinded us to what we're missing from the world as it reveals us to us ourselves from a perspective of meaning. And what Peterson then does is he he goes and he looks at you know the work of Jung, the work of Northrop Frye, the work of Mircea Eliade, and he he draws this basic archetypal structure. There is a world. Um, and he, he also um, sees this as deeply interconnected to the neurobiology uh, described by um, and, uh, Alexander Luria's students. Um, I can't remember the names off the top of my head, but uh, I'll, I'll put them in the description of this video. But Elkhorn Goldberg was the one who, who recognized that we have this basic orienting instinct in the brain. And so what it looks like 
from this perspective is that we, the most fundamental bifurcation, our experience of the world and our perception of the world is the difference between the world um, that we are, that, uh, that we expect and that we understand and the world that is anomalous to us or that is not, not that has novelty to us. So Peterson describes these as the world of order and the world of chaos. So you can imagine that as you go through your life, right, when you are going through a routine that you've developed and you've done many times, that this is essentially easy and comfortable and, um, and, and really unremarkable, right? Whereas when something unusual happens, that's where you learn something, right? That's where the unexpected has arrived, where an anomaly has happened. So, um, he talks about these as the prosaic story and the heroic story or the, the extraordinary story. So the prosaic story is something like I was hungry. I went to, uh, uh, to the kitchen. I made myself a peanut butter sandwich. Now I'm not hungry anymore. You can tell right away. That's not a story. That's very interesting. So now if I tell you the same story, I went to the kitchen and there were raccoons in my kitchen and they were in the way of me getting to my, my, uh, my peanut butter sandwich. And now I had to deal with this raccoon invasion and the raccoons were behaving strangely. Like now you're interested because something strange has happened. And in those moments where the unexpected happens, there's lessons about how we can all adapt to the unknown. And this is represented mythologically, you know, according to Peterson in, um, and not just Peterson, this is, this is a widely, widely accepted idea within folklore stories. There's this idea of the um, chaos comp, the conflict with chaos. So we, we have this, um, this story that occurs almost everywhere, which is this idea of some kind of monstrous, chaotic element coming into our lives. And then the hero is the person who voluntarily confronts that monstrous entity, right? And the idea is that in life, we always face the reality that, um, that problems are going to occur and that even catastrophes are going to occur. And if we avoid them, if we ignore them, they get worse. But if we proactively confront them, they become, we become stronger and more capable of dealing with the problems that are eventually and necessarily going to come into our lives. And so this, this is described in, in the, the dragon slayer archetype, right? Um, so when I tell the story of St. George and the dragon, you have um, George and also the princess who confront the dragon and they see in the dragon, you know, the dragon represents that chaotic potential. They represent a predator. The dragon represents the predator and predators, of course, are like the most important anomaly to pay attention to in your environment. You're going through your day and all of a sudden a bear is in your peripheral vision. You better pay attention and you better know what to do. And uh, this is this is the idea. So we anomaly in general. It, it's like it triggers the the um, the neurological apparatus that alerts us to present uh, to predators. So when your computer doesn't work and you have that big spike of negative emotion, that's basically using the same neural circuitry that would, would get you to be prepared to deal with a potential predator. And so anomaly 
um, is related to that. And the dragon represents anomaly, but the dragon traditionally also guards a whole hoard of gold. Gold, and so the the idea here is that um, the un the unexpected offers us two things: the potential of danger, right, but also the hope of reward, right. Within something unexpected, there's danger, and there's also the greatest riches to be found, or true love, right? Because we have to go outside of the expected, of the of the comfortable, of the day to day, in order to achieve things, in order to grow as human beings. Growth is not is not in the ordered world. It's in the place where we go out and confront something that puts us on our edge. And you know, this is perfectly aligned with the work of Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who is the author of the book Flow. And many people in our spheres and the movement sphere are, of course, very interested in the flow state. The flow state, as described by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, is the place where you're perfectly between order and chaos, right? Where you're balanced, where you have just enough resources to push yourself to your edge, and you're facing just enough anomaly to keep you growing and gaining information. So I could go much more deeply into why why this story is important to me, but there's two point there's a few points that I want to make here um, that are more central to why I told these two specific stories. So the overarching thing is I believe that when we take up a movement practice, what we're actually doing is we're setting out to craft the most heroic version of ourselves. And if you don't like the language of heroes, if you associate that with having big muscles and smashing things with a hammer and being a Marvel superhero, um, that's fine. You can just think of it as a, it's a practice of character development. It's a practice of self-transcendence. But the idea is that there's, there's a version of us that exists now. And there's the ideal version of us. There's the, the, the aspirational self. And we know that through practicing certain things, we can get closer to that aspirational self. And fundamentally, I think all of the things that we practice, whether it's meditation, whether it's crafting, whether it's cooking, they all share this underlying thing that they help you move towards the person that you would like to be. Um, Peterson describes the fundamental story as you exist in the unbearable present, right? Something in this moment is not sufficient, the insufficient present. And you're trying to get to the ideal future. And a story that's interesting is one where there's some sort of obstacle barrier that prevents you from getting there because that's what allows you to grow on your path, right? So what we do in parkour is we intentionally go out and find those obstacles. Same thing in martial arts, same thing in, in, in many of these other sports, and that's why they all come together with an involvement play. But parkour in particular, to me, seems like a physical representation of this dragon quest, right? We're going out to find our dragons in the environment in the form of gaps between buildings, in the form of giant vaults, in the form of anything that puts us on our edge and physically scares us. And of course, you know, snowboarder, a skier, a surfer, you know, they're facing very similar things. When you go down a giant wave for the first time, that's, that's that confrontation with chaos. You don't know exactly what will happen. You have to stretch yourself. And then you get to enter the flow state and then you get to grow as a human being and you get to craft the character that you want to be and you get to become a little bit closer to that aspirational self. That's why I told this tale of a dragon slayer. Now, there are many versions of this story and it exists um, in cultures all over the world. Uh, dragons themselves, you know, winged animals with claws and snake-like and breathing fire are not culturally universal necessarily. But um, that, that idea of the 
the chaos comp, the, the, the confrontation with chaos, that's universal. And it's very often thing that we are facing is represented as a snake or a snake-like being, a supernatural snake, a snake with wings, a snake with claws, a combination of snake-like and crocodile-like characteristics. Um, and, uh, and interestingly, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, I think it's interesting. Lynn Isbell has done some really beautiful research showing that probably snakes were a primary predator of primates through the vast majority of our evolution. So in our minds, in some sense, the ur predator is a snake-like animal. Um, but in any event, we have this, this representation of challenge as the predator and of the predator and the challenge as, as guarding the capacity for growth, right? Represented by the gold. And that's why we tell these stories. But I told the St. George and the Dragon story specifically um, because it has two heroes. It has a masculine hero and a feminine hero. And I'm careful to say masculine and feminine here, not male and female, because I think that the heroic capacities that are ex expressed in the character of George and the heroic capacities that are expressed in the character of the princess are present in both males and females. Um, but they're represented in our stories as masculine and feminine. I think perhaps those energies are dominant um, more so in one than the other. But uh, George, confronts the dragon and he attacks it with his lance. He pierces it, he fights it, right? He wounds the dragon. You know, he aims to destroy the dragon and eventually he does, he cuts the dragon's head off. The princess, on the other hand, she throws her girdle at the dragon. You know, girdle's not a, a terrible weapon, <laughs> um, but somehow she tames the dragon. And so I started to think about this. Um, Maybe I'll tell you guys another backstory here because I think this is important. So um, Peterson, who I greatly admire, I also don't agree with everything. And I think in some ways he's articulated the masculine much better than the feminine. And I was trying to understand this. And so, you know, Peterson has said that the, that the, um, that the feminine equivalent of the dragon slayer is Beauty and the Beast. And that, you know, Essentially, the, the equivalent of a dragon for women is represented by the dominant male that they have to bring into their life and tame. And I, I told this story of Beauty and the Beast to my students one year at Return to the Source. And the girls in the, in the class just shot me down. They did not associate, they did not feel attracted to that archetype at all. And I thought there was some truth there, but I also had to respect what they had to say. And I, I thought about it all night. It was quite, it was quite confronting for me have this experience um, but what I what I realized was that there's a that when we experience the chaotic the anomalous the unordered there's two potentials that we have one is sometimes that thing is just a predator it needs to be destroyed but sometimes it has the capacity to be brought into order and when we can bring it into order that's incredibly powerful, right? And so there's, there's the, the, the confrontation with the dragon where the dragon is pierced by the lance and destroyed. And then there's the confrontation with the dragon where the dragon is encircled and held until it releases its toxicity and becomes pain. Um, and I think about this like, you know, I'm a father, I have small children. Small children can be total chaos monkeys. Um, 
and your reaction to that chaos has to be to give them a boundary, but to give them love within that boundary. And through that, they come into order and they can grow. And that's a powerful, powerful element of the heroic journey. And so it seemed to me after that experience that there were two, there were two poles to this heroic confrontation with chaos. There was the destruction pole and the, um, the, the holding pole, I guess, right? There's a, it's, it's almost like surrender. You have to surrender, but you have to hold yourself at the same time. You have to hold the strength within yourself and the strength to hold the space for the, the other, the chaotic thing, whatever it is, you know, taming a wild horse, taming the beast. But when, when you phrase it as only the beauty and the beast, the problem is that you, you, you make women orbit around men, right? The story is still about a man. When you recognize that that power um, is represented far beyond just the male and female dynamic, um, you see something much more powerful in it. And what was interesting is as I, as I recognized that aspect of the feminine part of the heroic archetype, I saw it in myself, right? I'm not a particularly feminine guy. Um, I've never, you know, I used to joke that I didn't have a feminine side. I had a girlfriend and sisters and a mother, and I didn't need one because I had that. Um, but I had this interesting experience, which is when I do a jump way up high where I might die, right? You know, I might jump, I might be 30 feet up in a tree and jump from one limb to another. And when I approach that, I feel like there's an energy that is very yang. It's very like, I have to be direct. I have to be penetrating. I have to f push myself to the edge of the jump. But I can't jump where my life is on the line with that energy. That doesn't feel right. It feels dangerous. So there's this, there's this thing that gets me to the point of confronting the dragon. And then there's a moment when I'm looking at it that feels like surrender. That feels as if the jump has already happened and I just need to let it play out with my body. And then there's this relaxation in me. And then I can jump. And I, I started to see that it was like a, there was like a, you know, uh, I hope I'm not abusing the, the Chinese idea of yin and yang here, but we can use these to some degree to, to give it, but it's like a yang energy that takes me to the edge of the jump, but it's the yin energy that lets me know that it's really a line. And I find it as a powerful kind of experience of what's called wu wei in Taoism, which is action without action, right? Once I'm fully aligned and ready to jump, I don't jump, it jumps, right? The jump simply flows through me and that's one of the most powerful and profound feelings that I have. So I saw that there, there had to be both of these in the cultivation of the self and what I was trying to achieve in myself. But, and, and as I thought about that, I saw that in the story of Georgia, St. George and the Dragon, because you have these two heroes. You have the, the masculine hero who attacks the dragon with his lance and you have the feminine hero who, who encircles the dragon with her girdle. But I also saw something else in that story that seemed really profound to me, and it's, it's important to me to share it, because what I saw in that was a story embedded in a culture that had lost respect for the female heroic, that didn't really see it. Because the very name of the story is St. George and the Dragon. It's not... George and the princess and the dragon. And even if it was, why doesn't the princess have her own name? 
And if you look at the way the story is told, when, when you get to this point of the sadness of the sacrifice of the princess, it's her father who won't see her wedding day. It's still centric on a man. And, 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 and then she tames the dragon. She tames the dragon. But the villagers throw stones at the dragon to the, until, until St. George has to cut its head off. And what this looked like was this, somehow the story had represented for me the idea of the rejection of the feminine aspect of the heroic. Um, it's, it's subversion, it's, it's oppression, it's re repression. And I thought that that was something really worth pointing out, right? It's worth telling the story to share it in a way that, that potentially might alienate women because once you can look at it and see the feminine aspect of the heroic, and you can see how we've all missed it. That I think gives us a powerful lesson to go forward with. So that's the reason that I share that story, the story of St. George and the dragon, or have shared it in the past. So that's the first story. And I'm very curious to hear everyone's response to that. Um, I just want, before I move past that, I just want to point out again how heroic the princess is because I haven't completely spoken of this. The first thing that shows the heroism of the princess is that when she, when St. George approaches her and tells her that he will try to fight the dragon for her, she refuses. She asks him to leave. She's willing to sacrifice herself and she wants no one to take her place. That's the actions of a hero. Right? And then George frees her. She can run away. She, you know, if she's just a damsel in distress, she can get out of the situation now. The, the dragon then pins George behind a fence and she takes agency and she throws this girdle at the dragon. And then, you know, by magic, the dragon is tamed. It's kind of a weak story in that way, but it represents this idea of how we can use the feminine aspect of the heroic power to bring chaos into the order that is good, um, which is, you know, maybe one of the most powerful and beautiful aspects of the heroic archetype. So that's the story of St. George and the Dragon. So the next story that we're gonna get into is the story of the King of Odd. So this is a story that I, I ended up having to write for myself, uh, but it's based on a traditional archetypal story that shows up in many systems called um, the Parched Kingdom. And, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson has a version of this in the book Maps and Meaning, so I meant to read that version and then share it with the students, but for whatever reason, as I was preparing for the seminar, I had a really hard time flipping through Maps and Meaning and finding the story again. So I remembered the basics of it, um, that it involved a tailor uh, sewing the world back together. So I started to, to, uh, to build my own version of that, and I shared this story. And so to go back to the idea of chaos and order, right? Um, from the, the, the archetypal perspective uh, that, that Peterson offers, there is this, this basic um, experience of being that we all have. We have order, the, the world where what we do results in what we expect and we have chaos where anomalous things happen. And so 
you can see the world then is divided up between these three kind of archetypal things, chaos, order, and the individual that mediates between them. And now the interesting thing about this is that all of these end up having an ambivalent character, right? There is the aspect of chaos that is dangerous, right? And that is the dragon. But there's also the aspect of chaos that is promising, and that's the gold, right? Um, he also argues that that nature is often portrayed as chaos, and you can really see this. Nature is 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 beyond us, right? It's beyond our scope, um, and it is both the the beautiful beneficence that gives us life and gives us being. It's also floods and it's Ebola and it's the Black Plague and it's mosquitoes, you know, and it's lions that come into you and eat you. So there is something powerful about that idea. And then the individual has this capacity to transcend themselves and become heroic. And they also have this capacity to, uh, to, to, to engage in self-deception and to set themselves against being and to choose evil. Um, and then there's order and order is both the the cultural container that allows you to grow into an individual and it's also the thing that oppresses you and prevents you from expressing all of yourself and so there's this idea that um, we need order to hold back the blah the, the chaos of the world but we also need chaos to come into order to prevent it from being um, from being becoming stagnant and tyrannical Right? We see that all over the world, the hierarchies that we set up tend to become corrupt. And so there's now two aspects of the hero, the hero. There's the part of the hero that goes out and confronts the chaotic potential. And then there's the part of the hero that confronts, or the aspect of the hero that confronts how society has become tyrannical. Right? And that's why I told the story of the King of Odd. It's the story of how a king descends into tyranny and then how that descent into tyranny results in his kingdom becoming more fragile and weakened and it needs someone who can bring back the waters of life which is the representation of chaos again in order to renew the kingdom um and so so i, I that's the reason that i told that story now when i first started reading about these ideas i really identified parkour with the that aspect of proactively confronting chaos. But as I wrote this story and as I thought about this, all of a sudden it occurred to me that actually parkour has both elements to it. Because if you think about the experience of the founders of parkour, not only were they going out and confronting chaos and finding a new jump, but they were also reworking the order of the life that they were experiencing to bring a new source of chaos into it. Um, for those of you who don't know, parkour is founded in, um, in low-income areas on the suburbs of Paris. There's what's called the banlieues in, um, the banlieues in Paris, which are essentially um, housing projects that are on the outside of the city. The French are the opposite of America. We have our ghettos in the middle of the city. They have theirs on the outsides of the cities. So um, you have these housing projects on the outsides of Paris in Evry and Lise. And you had this group of kids who grew up there who were mostly um, immigrants. Um, they were ethnic minorities or mixed race. And uh, they came, they grew up in communities that had a lot of dysfunction. A lot of them also experienced some family dysfunction. Many of them dropped out of school. And you can really see that they could have gone a bad way. 
But somehow within the practice of parkour, they found something that allowed them to gain that character strength to resist drugs, to resist becoming involved in gangs, to grow themselves as people, to give themselves new opportunities. And what they were doing was radically reimagining their urban environment, indeed the natural environment as well in Sarcelles, as a place that gave them the opportunity to push themselves and to confront things. So when you walk down a city street, that street is ordered for you, right? You know a sidewalk means going forward, right? Sidewalk says you can walk here. A stairway says you can walk here. A wall says don't go here. What parkour was, was a reimagining of those spaces. It was an invitation of the waters of life. It was an invitation of chaos back into that world, right? Now that wall is a place that you can run and jump to, a place that you can jump down from, a place that you can do a flip from. And this, this was a, 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 a radical reimagining of how we use these spaces. And so in that way, I saw that parkour also partick of, partook of looking at a corrupt and stagnant order, a tyrannical order. For these kids, the, the, the order of the world around them was not in their favor. And it was not giving them the opportunities to grow the, the way that they wanted. And they changed the way that they saw the whole world in order to give themselves an opportunity to confront something that allowed them to grow and to overcome the situation that they came from. And so I see in the development of parkour, these two aspects of the heroic journey. And so with the students that I work with now, I tell these stories so that they can have this orientation towards the growth, the aspirational self, the person that they would like to become, the heroic self. And they can recognize that part of that is intentionally going out and confronting things and intentionally finding positive struggle because it's through that struggle that we grow. It's through that struggle that we find the flow state. It's through that struggle that we become the person that we would like to become. But also I wanted to give them that other idea that not only do they have to overcome themselves, um, they have to also be able to look at the world around them and say, what is holding me back? What is holding society back? And how do I become the person who can also confront that? And these two aspects of the heroic individual, I think are incredibly important. And I think the stories give us a way to tap into them that's way more powerful than just describing them explicitly. So that's why I share archetypal stories as part of my workshops. And that's what they mean to me and how I connect them and what they mean relative to my life, right? I had ADHD, I had dyslexia. I was in a system that, that wasn't gonna work for me. And through these stories, through the, 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 the confrontational chaos, right, in rough housing, and then through parkour as I came to it, I was able to craft something that, that worked for me. And, uh, and I see that every time that I go out, right, I'm trying to find something that is like an anomaly. It's like that opportunity, that something that I'm, that's unexpected, something that is more than I've done before, a new way of seeing the space, a new way of challenging myself. And every time that I can see that new thing, and every time that I can confront it and overcome it, the person that I become on the other side um, is somehow closer to the person that I would aspire to be. And ultimately, I think that is what motivates movement practice. And so I went from looking at the world sort of implicitly from this perspective, I think, as I came into parkour, to adopting a very explicit and sport-focused goal that really didn't serve me, 
And then I released my goals and I found growth there through just play, but it became stagnant. I got, I started getting injured. It wasn't, it wasn't really taking me where I needed to go. And then I found this idea of the heroic self of practice as a means to become the person that you would like to become. And that has fueled these incredible changes in my practice, in the way that I've interacted with my students, in my own growth from a psycho-emotional perspective, in my, in my relationship with my wife and my kids. Um, and, and so that's why I place so much emphasis on these narratives and our understanding of them. And, um, and that's why I tell these stories. So I hope you guys enjoyed this. You know, Please give me your comments on what these stories meant to you, how this all makes sense. Um, and we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you really like the content we're putting out, make sure to leave us a five-star rating and a review. It helps tremendously in getting the word out about what we're doing. And of course, you really want to support us. You can support us on Patreon. This is a listener-funded podcast. And through your funding, it allows us to have the best equipment and to attract the best guests and build our audience. So we really appreciate it if you do those things. And we look forward to talking to you next time.